Father, we just seek to lift you high in this place today, in our lives. Um, Jesus, we just invite you to be Lord of this time, and we bind in the name of Jesus any agent of the enemy coming against us. Um, We pray for your freedom to be in this place. We pray for your forgiveness to be in this place, to bring wholeness to each one. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Okay. We're going to be in Daniel 1 again. And uh, Daniel 3 again, and we'll see if I can get it right this time. We'll get to that in a minute. It was a time of spiritual apathy and dry moralism. It was a time of the form of godliness with none of its power. It was the 30s. It was the 1730s. Little plot twist for you. The Church of England, while undeniably dominant on the cultural landscape of Britain, had grown stale. Its preachers proclaimed a vague morality that was easily attained and therefore pointless. There were, however, on the fringes of the Church of England, a small but growing group of individuals who gathered together to study the Scriptures, to pray, to fast, to visit the prisons, to care for the poor. They were called Bible moths because they ate up the Scripture like a moth would eat things. They were called Bible bigots. Because they sought to receive the Lord's Supper any time it was offered, at least daily, they were called sacramentarians. And for their disciplined pursuit of God, engaging in spiritual practices to find more of Jesus, they were called Methodists. What began in a private room in Oxford led to a national revival. Within a few years, the Methodist movement grew from just a few friends pursuing the heart of God together to a disruptive force within and without the Church of England. And realizing that the true harvest of souls was to be found not in the churches, but in the open fields, among miners, among day laborers, and since by this point most Methodist preachers had been forbidden from the major churches within England, Methodist preachers like John Wesley went to the streets And there, as they preached, they were met with more than just mockery. They were met with violence. Wesley recounts in one of his journals that while preaching to a group of people that there gathered another group that wanted to disrupt the preaching gathering. And so what they did is they released their herd of cattle among those who were listening to the preaching. And they weren't really deterred by the cattle. I'm just telling you what happened. um, They weren't deterred by the cattle, and so the 
those that wanted the gathering to stop, those that wanted Wesley to stop preaching and for the people to not hear his preaching, they picked up stones and began to throw them at those who were listening. And John Wesley writes in his journal, he says, one stone struck me between the eyes, but I felt no pain at all. And when I had wiped away the blood, I went on testifying with a loud voice that God has given to them that believe not the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I'm feeling a little tired today. And sometimes that makes it hard to preach. I've not gotten beamed between the eyes. I mean, that should kill you, actually. That can kill you. A stone between the eyes can kill you. And he wipes off the blood and just keeps preaching. There's another story in John Wesley's journals that as he was preaching in an, a gathering indoors, he was drugged from the place mid-sermon. People busted into the place, went up on the podium, grabbed him, dragged him out by the hair, and two strong guys held him while other guys were trying to wallop him. And he says in his journals, though I could move neither to the left or the right, not a single blow fell on me. Right? Okay, and just one quick, one quick sub-story since we're in the zone of the miraculous. On January 1st, 1739, John Wesley and the early Methodists had a watch night prayer. They prayed all night. And in the middle of the night, the Holy Spirit's presence in the room was so profound and so strong that they all were crying out to God with a loud voice, and most of them couldn't get off the ground. The question, by the way, isn't if I'm Methodist or not. The question is if you are. See what I'm doing here? I was studying John Wesley this week, and revival was breaking out in my office. The Holy Spirit was moving. <clears throat> For the past few weeks, we've considered what it means to be an exile, to be a cognitive minority, to be someone whose way of life and patterns of thinking are increasingly at odds with the cultural moment around you. We've, taught, we've gone so far as to say that to be an exile is to be a stranger and an alien within your own country. And by these definitions, John Wesley is an exile. By these definitions, the Methodist movement that took Britain by storm, that spilled into the colonies, that became the fastest growing form of Christianity in the first half of the 18th century, even though Methodist circuit riders were called heretics, sexual predators, false prophets, and wolves in sheep's clothing, that is to be a Methodist, is to be in exile. Exile is not a new phenomenon to the people of God. It's just new to us. Exile is not a new phenomenon to the people of God. It's just new to us. And whether it's the Israelites carted away to Babylon two millennia ago, or the Wesleyan Methodist movement of the, of the 17 and 1800s, or the underground church in China or Iran today, to be in exile is not a new phenomenon, it is just new to us. But to walk the way of exile is what we have learned is what? To walk the way of exile is to walk the way of blessing. It's to walk the way of holiness. I've got somebody testifying in the back of the room and I am here for it. Um, I, 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 it's to walk the way of holiness. It's to walk the way of blessing. It's to walk the way of sacrifice. In other words, to walk the way of exile is profoundly difficult. Just because we can name the phenomenon doesn't mean we can do it. It's one thing to know. It's another thing to live. How do we walk the way of exile when the undertow of our culture is so strong? I was, I was at the beach. I was probably in late elementary school, early middle school. My mom and I were swimming in the ocean. 
And all of a sudden we looked up and we were much further out in the water than when we had first started. This is called an undertow. My mom's a very strong swimmer. I had been taught to swim. And so my mom knew that when you're caught in an undertow, you don't swim straight back at shore, do you? You swim at an angle. As if to say, you zig when the water wants you to zag. We're caught in a moment of cultural undertow. That's the point of exile. The point of exile is captivity. The point of exile is to assimilate us into the lifestyle of the culture around us. How do we resist that cultural undertow? How do we resist it without becoming angry, without becoming entitled, without becoming defensive, without becoming depressed, without becoming defeatist, without withdrawal, without compromise? How do we walk the way of exile? Well, we have to walk the way of resistance. And it's not something that you can do by yourself. This morning, we're going to turn to Daniel and watch how he and his friends walk the way of resistance. So look with me yet again at Daniel 1. In Daniel 1, we watch Daniel walk the way of holiness. Daniel and his friends zig when everyone around them zags. Chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. Verse 12, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, and at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food, then make your decision. You see, Daniel and his friends zig when others zag, and they resist the king's food in favor of a diet that that honors the Lord. And because of their obedience, the Lord's favor is released. Now, in Daniel 3, we just need to stop and offer a correction to last week, okay? So... I preached a sermon that was explicitly biblically incorrect last week. Um, And I would like to blame Veggie Tales. Okay, so last week while preaching on Daniel 3, I kept insisting that Daniel and his three friends were thrown in the fire. Okay? And I'm halfway through preaching at the first gathering when I realize, oh crap, Daniel is not in this passage at all. But by then, and I'm the parent of a toddler, I was a little tired, and so by then, like, this mental groove and rut had just formed itself in my mind, and I could not get out of it. And so I actually doubled down last week to try to indicate that Daniel really was there, and he is there in the VeggieTales-inspired version. But he is not, however, there in Daniel chapter 3. It is just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So I'd like to offer that correction, offer my apologies, and also note that I think that this is happening because we're training a new cadre of preachers, and I think I am going forward in weakness. And I think sometimes people say to me, I don't know how you do that. And I think last week people were like, I don't know how he did that. (laughs) You know, like a little concern. Um, But the point is, the point is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, here's where I think, where was Daniel, you ask? I think Daniel's a good politician. I think Daniel knew how to be out of town that day. I genuinely think that. I think Daniel is of a place of importance in the kingdom that he said, ooh, sorry, King Nebuchadnezzar, I've got to go over here and solve this problem for you, which if I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm like, thanks, bro, you know? Um, so Daniel's friends left about Daniel, and they choose to walk the way of sacrifice. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, three people. There's a fourth person, not a fifth, because there was only three, not four. And then the angel of the Lord delivers them. 
and spiritual revolution comes to, ba- to Babylon. So here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the favor of God. We're talking about spiritual revolution. And we're saying that the way to get there is through holiness and sacrifice. That is a long journey. That is a difficult journey. They are especially difficult to walk if you walk it by yourself. The road from sacrifice to spiritual revolution, the road from from holiness to favor is a long road when you walk it by yourself. Do not, do not. I looked at the Bible this week. This is true. Do not miss this. Daniel does not walk the way of holiness by himself. Do not, do not miss that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk the way of sacrifice together. If you set out to walk the way of holiness by yourself, if you set out to walk the way of sacrifice by yourself, the odds are so very high that you will fail. The odds are so very high that you will experience minimal fruitfulness. You will fail because this is nothing less than a spiritual battle. This is coming up against spiritual strongholds erected and inhabited by principalities and powers in the unseen places. Listen, when Daniel chooses not to eat the food provided for him by the king, he's not just passing over a really good surf and turf. He's coming against a spiritual stronghold of appetite and ambition. All he had to do was eat the food, he'd be a wild success, but he resists. They resist together, they come against the stronghold together, and God's favor is released. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship the statue King Nebuchadnezzar sets up, they aren't just claiming religious exemption. They are coming against a spiritual stronghold of idolatry. They are coming against a spiritual stronghold of syncretism, of blending various spiritual traditions together into one blob religion. They are coming against a spiritual stronghold that says politics determines religion. They go up against a spiritual stronghold, they resist, and they do it together, and spiritual revolution comes. All of this is exactly what Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 gets to the heart of. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says... Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? My wife is traveling. She's going to be back tomorrow. I slept in my bed last night by myself, and I was freezing. Verse 12, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two could stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. We cannot walk the way of sacrifice. We cannot walk the way of holiness alone and succeed. Or if we do, it will be very, very difficult. When John Wesley and his friends started reading the Bible together and praying together, they were mocked because they were coming up against a spiritual stronghold that had defined religion, not with a mind renewed with truth or a heart inflamed with passionate love for God, 
But with church attendance, they were coming up against a spiritual stronghold of apathy. They were coming up against a spiritual stronghold of complacency. They were coming up against a spiritual stronghold of moralism and legalism. The bishops of the Church of England wrote a letter to John Wesley accusing him of heresy for suggesting that going to church every week or every other week wasn't enough to fulfill the commands of Christ. They were going up against a spiritual stronghold. They were mocked and they prevailed because they did it together. When John Wesley was preaching to the masses and he was beaten and he was stoned, it was because he was going up against a spiritual stronghold of classism and elitism. To go to the Church of England in the early 1700s meant you had to put on your best, your Sunday best, which I imagine to be a three-piece suit, a cane, and a top hat. But that might be more Victorian England. It was to wear a style of clothes that the average worker could not afford. And so the Church of England effectively cut out entire swaths of its population from the church. Meanwhile, Jesus said one of the most vibrant, one, one of the best ways to tell the vibrancy of our spiritual life is, our, is measured by our care for the poor. John Wesley and his friends, the Methodist movement, was going up against nothing less than a stronghold of elitism and classism and preference. And they were almost killed, but because they went up against the stronghold, together they prevailed. Hundreds, if not thousands of people who had heard about God, hear me, who had heard about God but did not know him, came to faith. Their hearts were warmed by the preaching of the gospel. And suddenly, John Wesley and his friends have a unique problem. How do I disciple hundreds of people? John Wesley, in his book, A Plain Account of the People Called Methodist, this is what he writes. By the blessing of God upon their endeavors to help one another, many found the pearl of great price. The pearl of great price is Jesus. That's one of my life verses. I'll be preaching it the first Sunday of Lent. I can't wait. Uh, many found the pearl of great price. Being justified by faith, they had peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They felt a more tender affection than before to those who are partakers of the precious faith. They found, in other words, I like these people I'm doing life with more than I thought I would. Yeah, they're growing as a spiritual family. And hence arose such a confidence in each other that they poured out their souls into each other's bosom. I've never really poured out my concerns into someone's bosom, but I have told someone about my deep heart troubles, yeah? I've gone to someone and said, this is what's going on inside of me. I need your help. They're growing in spiritual family. Indeed, he says they have great need to do so. They have great need to pour out their hearts. Why? The war was not over as they had supposed. See, they thought, I came to Jesus, it's going to get easier. Who among you is discovering that following Jesus just gets harder? Anybody? Okay, well, the three of you are trying, and the rest of us are just, just kidding. All of you, raise your hands in your hearts. He says, the war was not over, indeed, as they had thought. They still had to wrestle both with flesh and blood, and with principalities and powers. In other words, got all these people, they've got sins of the flesh that they're wrestling against. Sins of the flesh that they're wrestling against. They, not only that, there seems to be a spiritual struggle 
They're battling against spiritual strongholds. Do I want to know if that's my son? Is that my son? Do we know? Okay, Brendan keeps going back there. Thank you, Jess, thank you. Thank you. Um, the war was not over as they had supposed, but they still had to wrestle with both flesh and blood, with principalities and powers. John Wesley says the war is not over. These new followers of Jesus had since the flesh to deal with, as well as spiritual strongholds that were trying to drag them back by undertow into the apathetic, moralistic, legalistic, complacent, moralistic religion from which they came. And they overcame these strongholds because they banded together against them. That's what John Wesley did. He organized people into bands. Four or five men with men, four or five women with women, married women with married women, married men with married men, singles together, singles together, and they met every week. They banded together to flee the wrath that is to come, and they overcame these strongholds, not because they were especially spiritual, not because they knew the Bible so well, not because they knew how to prophesy, not because they had the scriptures memorized, but because they gathered with others to pursue Jesus together in their weakness. These bands met, and here's what they talked about. They didn't, here, let me tell you what they did not talk about. They did not talk about fluffy things. They did not talk about sports. They did not talk about hunting. They did not talk about Pinterest or whatever it is women talk about. I only listen to men. Um, here's what they talked about. What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? What temptations have you met with? How were you delivered? This one's good. How have you thought, what, what have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? What's something that you did this week that you're like, I'm not sure. Let's talk about it. Here's my other, this is a good one. What have you, what do you desire to keep secret? So here's what I thought we'd do with the rest of our time this morning. Let's gather in groups of three or five. <laughs> now, let me offer an historical aside to this movement, because you walked into a Methodist church this morning. Wesley organized uh, the bands, which was a group of four or five, which was a subset of something called the class, which was something like anywhere between 12 and 20, 30, 40 people. Uh, in, to be a Methodist, you had to attend a band, you had to attend a class, you had to go to church every week, and you had to attend at least one other like preaching, teaching, gathering in addition to your class every week. If you did not do these things, you were kicked out of Methodism. Actually, what first happened is you were put in a band, a special band for backsliders. <laughs> in 1860, this was the requirement of being a Methodist until 1860 for about 130 years. Whenever Methodism sh got shaky in the colonies or in the UK, the bishops always knew it was a band and class meeting problem, that if Methodism was falling short, it was because the bands and the classes weren't meeting, so they weren't pursuing holiness. And in 1860, uh, the General Conference, which is our deciding denominational body, decided that class meetings and band meetings were no longer a requirement to be a, Methodism, a Methodist. And if you watch history, and it was about in 1860, which was also around the time that we created an educated clergy class, you watch the numbers just start to fall off a cliff. 
which is why in the new expression of Methodism that is forming, um, I've helped kind of shape some of that in some very, very tiny ways with some others. And our group argued that you cannot be in church leadership. And in fact, I argued you should not have church membership if you're not in, if you're not in a group. I argued for that. Not out of a spirit of legalism, but at a heart to recapture holy love. So if that happens, you can blame me and three of my friends. Um, but do you see what these people did? They banded together to walk the way of exile. Daniel did it, the early Methodists did it, and they overcame some very real strongholds. To overcome spiritual strongholds, we cannot be John Wayne. To overcome spiritual strongholds, we can't be John Wayne, we can't do it alone. We can't be John Wayne, we gotta be John Wesley. The only time in John Wesley's life that he did something truly crazy was when he didn't do it with accountability. So Charles, his brother, wanted to get married to some chick, and John Wesley interviewed her and went back to Charles and said, no. And guess what Charles did? Charles didn't marry her. John Wesley gets sick. He's nursed to health by this single girl, falls in love with her, marries her without telling, John, without telling Charles or anybody else. Six weeks later, they get into a fight, and she disappears forever. And not like he killed her. Like, but like history can't find her. All we have is the record of their marriage and a journal entry that he says, I've not seen her. So like John Wesley spends the rest of his life married but separated. And it's the only time that he did something outside the bounds of his band or his community. If we're going to confront spiritual strongholds, we can't be John Wayne. we got to be John Wesley. And, and think about this. Jesus, did he not overcome some spiritual strongholds in his ministry? Jesus gathered around him 12 dudes. All I'm saying is that if Jesus needed people around him to contend against the strongholds of his day, we probably are going to need some help like that too, yeah? So I want, in the moments we have left, this is actually going to be a two-parter. So next week, we're going to talk about some very specific spiritual strongholds. But let's talk about what spiritual strongholds are in general and how we tear them down. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Starting in verse 3. For though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way, since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Let me read that again. I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I like this, how they render this. For though we live in the body, here I am, living in my body. I do not wage war in an unspiritual way. Instead, the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Paul says we don't wage war in an unspiritual way. We wage them with spiritual weapons by drawing upon the resources of the Spirit. And what are strongholds? Well, he says we demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised against the knowledge of God. Paul says that we are at war, but we do not wage war in an unspiritual way. We're at war against strongholds. What is a stronghold? It's an argument. It's a high-minded way of thinking. It's a pattern of thought 
It's a conceit, I think is what the King James says, a conceit. Any kind of thinking that is raised up against the knowledge of God. So let's, here, here's a few spiritual strongholds. The Bible is not God's word, but just the compilation of the words, the words of men. That's a spiritual stronghold. That's a lofty idea raised against the knowledge of God. Here's a lofty idea. The authors of the New Testament have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to sexuality. That is a lofty idea raised against the knowledge of God. And most Christians can identify those, which is good. The problem is we often come against the spiritual strongholds we do recognize in unspiritual ways. So we boycott and we cancel and we protest and we outrage and we seek legislative solutions to moral problems. Those are not the weapons of the Spirit. The weapons of the Spirit are sacrifice, holiness, and not to mention, love is our weapon, right? But what if there are strongholds that are so, like, invasive and so common that we can't even really recognize them because we're like fish swimming in water, right? Because a spiritual stronghold is a pattern of thinking or an argument, or I would even say a vision of the world that is contradictory to what God says is real. It is so pervasive and pernicious that without realizing it, most of us have bought into it. And, and, and so off the top of my head, I mean, they're just isms, right? Consumerism, right? Materialism, individualism. But let's think about, like, say, for example, tribalism. Most of us spend most of our time around people who think, behave, believe, and act the exact same way as we do. Right? And anybody who thinks different than we are, than we do, or, or lives different than we do, we don't really know how to get close to them. And when we do, we're so disturbed that we usually think them, at best, intellectually deficient, and at worst, morally suspect. It's how I was raised in a Republican home to think about Democrats. Okay. Here's another one, racism. So pervasively a part of our world that anybody that goes against it gets assassinated. Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln. It cost them their life. This is an interesting one to pair with the other two, but, but what about the spiritual complacency within the American church that has replaced obtaining knowledge with obedience? Jesus says that his disciples are the people that put into practice what he says, not who know more about what he says than other people. Now next week, we're gonna look at a few very specific strongholds and talk about how do we band together to take those down because there's some very specific spiritual strongholds coming against us as a spiritual family that, that are limiting, I think, the breakthrough that we wanna see, okay? But for now, this is where I wanna start. I wanna start with this. The level of breakthrough you are experiencing personally is most likely correlative with the number of people who are walking the way of Jesus with you. There's a correlation between the level of freedom and breakthrough you are experiencing in your walk with Jesus, 
there's a correlation between the level of breakthrough you're experiencing and how many people are or are not up in your business. Okay? One of the things that I have had to learn over the last year um, is to ask for help. When the breathing stuff started, um, I really kind of just wanted to muscle through and be brave. And uh, finally opened up to some people about it and they said, yeah, you just need people to be praying for you. Can I tell you what I hate doing? I've grown to accept it and like it. I hate texting people. I need you to pray for this thing. Why? Because it is me acknowledging my weakness. I hate especially texting other men. Because there's always, I've just never super felt included in the world of men. And so to be vulnerable and not strong, that feels hard. Um, so guess what I do now? I rec here, here's what I began to recognize. I, I began to recognize that that was a stronghold of like individualism in me and kind of a John Wayne, almost rebelliousness, like... And here's the thing that we think. We think Jesus wants us to overcome our strongholds by being strong, but the way that we overcome our strongholds is by being weak, right? And so here's what I've started to do. I've started to annoyingly bombard certain individuals in my life with prayer requests. And I hate it. I hate feeling weak. But as I have done that, I've started to see a level of breakthrough, right? And it's natural and supernatural. I'm on a better asthma inhaler than I was a year ago, but also there's a level of prayer covering for me that I think has closed the door for my, this part of my body to be a doorway for the enemy. Um, there's some women in our church, there are three women in our church that have banded together to pray for each other's families, right? Because you can feel so hopeless about like your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your kids coming to know the Lord, Right? It's kind of because you're like too close to the situation, aren't you? Like all you see is they're ugly. So um, these three women have banded together to pray for each other's families. And like, here, here's what that does not mean. It does not, it, mean, it does mean like some like text messages or some real quick, but it means they meet together face-to-face -face monthly or at least virtually monthly to pray together and that lasts an hour or two. Yeah? Um, and... And they're beginning to see some pretty significant breakthrough in the lives of their families. Right? So what I've started to learn as I've been following Jesus over the last couple of years is that when I experience a place of stuckness, the invitation of the Lord is to find people that will pray with me about that. Right? Now, here's the the sticker, that, like the caution warning. As you do that, the level of spiritual warfare against you will increase. So I woke up Monday morning at about 5.30, Tuesday morning at about 5.30, with the most explicitly demonic dream that I have ever had in my life. Y'all, I was absolutely, deeply, profoundly terrified in a way I have never been scared before. And in the dream, I was able to kind of, in my head, I knew I was supposed to be casting it out. How do I cast out a demon? In the name of Jesus, get out of here. So in the, I'm trying to say the name of Jesus in my dream, and I can't. I wake up at 5.30 in the morning yelling, help me, help me, help me, help me. At the same moment, Jack wakes up screaming in the next room, right? 
between Jack and I waking Steph out of a super strange stress dream, right? So as we've started to tear down some strongholds because, and we'll talk about this a little bit next week, strongholds ultimately are like prisoner of war camps. The enemy wants you in a prisoner of war camp of a stronghold where you can kind of have it, like think about a prisoner of war camp. You turn in your weapons, right? And you get food and shelter and you don't have to fight the war, right? Well, here's what starts to happen. When you come out of the, spiritual, the, the prisoner of war camp, when you start tearing down strongholds, you get your weapon back and all of a sudden then you're in the battle, right? Um, and so we'll talk about, this is why we need other people next week and we'll also talk today about, before we end about how we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We don't need to be afraid, but I started asking people to pray about that this week, right? Because we're starting to see a fresh level of that. At across the board, a couple times this week, some other people in our spiritual family, a fresh and intense level of spiritual warfare. Um, but again, another story of breakthrough, right? So Jack gets sick a lot. He gets sick a lot or was getting sick a lot. I mean, if you know, it was like every three weeks, it was another cold and another cold and another sniffle. And so Steph, when we were going um, to Phoenix for my brother's wedding and then to LA for this ministry conference, anytime we've done something with that ministry network, 3DM, Jack gets sick. So what we said was, okay, we see that. So we assembled a group of about 10 or 12 people to pray for Jack every day that we were gone. And since those people have been praying for Jack, he's not gotten sick again. And so um, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective, is what the scriptures say, right? Um, and, and so if you are feeling stuck spiritually, if you are not, come and talk to me. I want to know what that feels like. Where you are feeling stuck spiritually my, my invitation to you this morning is to gather two or three people that will pray with you about that. And if you really want to carry the ball all the way to the end zone, you can start with, you can start with text messages, hey, would you be praying for? That's, that's an awesome first step. But I, I would then really challenge you to gather with those two or three or four people once a month to pray specifically about that stuff, yeah? Um, so, so where is the area of stuckness? Um, is, it, is it hopelessness? Is it like sickness in your house? Is it stuff keeps breaking in your house? If stuff in your house is breaking, that means breakthrough's coming. Can I just tell you? So if like your dish, this happens to the Garrett's all the time, right? Their stuff is just constantly breaking. That's not coincidence, that's the evil one, okay? I'm not, I'm not the guy that sees a demon behind every bush, but there is probably a demon behind most bushes. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and uh, if stuff keeps breaking in your house, um, if there's like a mental health struggle that you just can't get out from underneath, if there is a, if there is a compulsive behavior, shopping, spending, pills, porn, if there is just a weight of discouragement my challenge is to gather two, three, four people that will pray with you about that. Steph and I feel like we are called to be part of some of that praying, but not all of that praying. Okay? That's kind of like a time management thing. I can't be on everybody's three or four prayer team. <laughs> 
But one of the cool things that's been happening across our church lately too is that um, there's a lot of breakthrough happening without the hired holy people present, right? Because we're the priesthood of all believers together. And so pray about like, who are those two or three or four people? I'm glad to be part of it if I'm supposed to be. But I think the Lord is going to be raising up over the next little bit these prayer bands where we're going to start to see some really strong, some really significant strongholds be torn down. Um, one of the things that Steph and I do feel, I, I don't know why I feel, I feel probably compelled to say this, a lot of you don't have Christian parents. Um, and so one of the ways that Steph and I feel very called to intercede for you is in that position. We have, we have parents that pray for us and grandparents that pray for us, and not everybody has that. And so especially for those of you that are like first-generation Christians, Steph and I feel really called to intercede for you because if she and I aren't, who is, right? Um, and so what are the strongholds? What is the stronghold, and who are you going to take with you? And some of that could start today after... Um, after response time and communion, you want to come back, the, the Coopers and the, the Brits and, nope, the Brits aren't here. The Coopers and the Bannings. <laughs> Be glad to pray with you, okay? So Father, um, I'm just, can I just do response time? Is that okay? I feel like I just did it. Is that okay? Or do you feel like you have something? Okay, then okay. Uh, Father, speak to us. Lord, I pray against these strongholds, even as Heather comes to give us a space to do that. You'd speak and move. Okay, so, um, yeah, I kind of did feel like there was something going on. Uh, what got my attention was the idea that... Um, there's a spiritual stronghold set up against even meeting together to address the other spiritual strongholds. That was something I was thinking about in the first service. It's kind of not leaving me. So um, I wanted us, <clears throat> sorry, as we pray, and this time is meant to just ask the Father what he wants us to pay attention to, what he wants us to do with the words that we've heard. So as we do that, um, I want us to be thinking about what is the specific thing that is coming against your desire or your ability to meet with others in like a strong, deep biblical community. Um, yeah, I just thought that we could think about that together and then I can pray.
So it's interesting to me that Kyle was going to give me a pass because um, as he was preaching, I was kind of thinking about feeling the need to do something and uh, my face is still hot right now, which tells me that either the Lord does want me to do it or Preston is still here and took control of the thermostat. <laughs> He's not, all right, then here we go. Um, kind of felt like asking um, if there is a couple people that would be willing to say what that thing is um, that's stopping us, that they feel like is stopping us from going further into community so that we can pray specifics. If there's anybody. What is something specific that you feel is coming up against you as you pursue community? So like with Kyle, it might have been when Jack was getting sick, sort of thing. I can. I did not tell, we did this last week, did you know that? No, I did not. No, okay, so she wasn't here last week. I made them do this last week, so we did not plan this. distraction um, is a huge thing. It's so easy to be super busy and um, you know there's always another level on a video game <laughs> that I could beat. I didn't huh. mean to look at you. <laughs> Sorry. There's another hear. wordle. <laughs> you know, there's like, always right. another wordle. Yeah like I mean yeah there's a, always like it's not um not stuff that has to be done. There's always another counter that I could organize, like another, you know, like it's, I mean, you know, it's stuff that like is more socially acceptable <laughs> than video games, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, like there's always another thing that I could do that, um, yeah, that could take up that time. Were you raising your hand? Scott, were you raising your hand? Okay, good, all right. You've been voluntold. Uh, I think that this, this weather just has been relentless in not letting up, and that can definitely be stopping some people from getting together. And Mitch in the back. I think personally for me and probably other people maybe, but uh, I think anxiety of having other people uh, come in close to you or uh, maybe uh, mental illness, different mental illness things. Um, I think that can make it hard to spend time and let people get close, I think for me anyways. Okay. Oh. Then these two, these two, and then we'll... She has a mic, I'm not bringing this mic. to her. But I can't talk and play at the same time. Um, my brain says, I feel like an inconvenience to other people asking them to come join me. Hmm. That's a hard one for me. Hmm. I want to forget exactly what you're going to say. Take a minute. It's so easy to, like 
not want to tell other people about what's going on. Like I was talking to my doctor and I was listing all these things that I was having trouble with. And I'm like, I swear I'm not this weird of a person. Like I don't like tell people like about all of my problems. But I feel like when I actually do tell people about all of the things I'm going through, I feel so awkward mm. about it. Mm. And that stops me from having close relationships with people. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you all. Father, we, we come with a whole list of things that we feel like stops us from being in community or maybe being more vulnerable in the communities that we're already in. So I just pray in the name of Jesus that those strongholds would be broken, that distraction wouldn't have a hold over us, that the weather wouldn't have the influence that it does, that those times where we feel like any sort of mental illness or feelings of nervousness or like we're a burden, um, that those things, they just don't have the power that Jesus does. So we declare that now. Lord, and we ask that your presence would come, that your Holy Spirit would replace all of the things that we've mentioned as we go together with each other and with you um, and just seeking after the things that you're after. It's in your name. Amen.